Chapter 18 of The Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners by Agnes G. Byrne. Chapter 18 Rain, Snow, and Hail. Thus we see that the cloud, like a mist or fog, is pressed by a cold air current out of a warm one, to hang suspended as a countless multitude of minute floating water drops. Sometimes through a change of wind or temperature, these drops are drawn anew into the air, and the cloud vanishes. But sometimes they go on increasing. More and more vapor is turned into mist, and the cloud spreads over a wider and wider extent. Then the tiny drops get more and more crowded together, till they begin to run into one another, and so bigger drops are formed, which again join and make still larger ones. Now, though the air can hold up very tiny drops of water, it cannot for any length of time support large and heavy drops. Naturally, when they get beyond a certain size, they can be buoyed up no longer, but must fall to the ground at the shower of rain. It should, however, be understood that this certain size is by no means always the same size. Moving air can support a heavier weight than still air. A gale of wind could keep floating above us drops, which a gentle breeze would have no power to hold up. This may help to explain the difference in the sizes of raindrops. There are often strong winds blowing in the higher regions of the atmosphere when we have a calm below. Sometimes the same thing is seen in a fog, which after all is merely a cloud resting on the ground. The tiny water drops become so abundant that they run together and form bigger drops, which fall to the ground like rain. But all this is a very partial explanation. There is much that is mysterious in the formation of raindrops and other forces, such as electricity, have a hand in the matter. Rain, briefly, is caused as mist and fog are caused, by the meeting of two currents of air, one warm, one cold. The moisture of the warm air is condensed into a cloud, and in many cases rain follows. Rain is also caused by the rushing of warm lowland air up a mountainside. Some of the heaviest rains known in any part of the world are on mountains, especially on mountains which lie not far from the sea. The air over the ocean gets thoroughly soaked with vapor, which, while warm, it can well carry. Then suddenly it comes against the mountain range, and has to pour upward, losing heat as it does so. Becoming fast colder, it can no longer contain its supplies of hidden moisture. Then clouds of floating mist are formed, and torrents of rain are poured down. Air hurrying up a mountainside loses heat in two ways. The coldness of the mountain takes effect, chilling down the warm air. Also, in rising to a higher level, it expands, becomes more thin or rare, spreading out its particles over a larger space because of lessened pressure. This expansion of air, or of any gas, always means increase of coldness, heat being given out in the act of expansion. Increase of coldness means lessened power to carry moisture, which means nearer approach to saturation 
and therefore increased dampness. Therefore, too, it means often heavy downfalls of rain. So no wonder high mountains in hot countries are often famous for the deluges with which they are favored. The amount of rain which falls in different places varies extremely. Taking all the year round, we have a moderately abundant supply in the British Isles, but nothing like what is known in tropical countries. The fall of rain in London, except on rare occasions, seldom exceeds an inch, footnote, measured by means of a rain gauge. A gallon of water weighs ten pounds, and if spread out in a layer one inch thick will only cover an area of two square feet. An inch of rain gives a hundred tons of water per acre, or sixty thousand tons per square mile. Scott, end of footnote. In twenty-four hours, but in other places this amount is enormously increased. A joyous in France, thirty inches have been known to come down in less than twenty-four hours. If the whole amount which falls on the east coast of England during a year could be carefully collected on a level surface, no running away or sinking into the earth, or drying up being a load, we should have at the year's end a layer of water about twenty inches in depth. If the same were done on the west coast of Ireland or Scotland, the supply of water at the year's end would be six or eight feet deep. So even in the British Isles there is a very marked diversity between different places. But if this same course were followed at a certain hill station in India, named Cherapunji, a much greater result would be obtained, in the shape of a large lake, at the very least between thirty and forty feet in depth. Cherapunji enjoys the far from delightful eminence of being one of the wettest spots on the face of the earth. Sometimes in cold weather we have snow instead of rain. Snow is not frozen rain. It falls directly as snow from snow clouds. In winter the frozen clouds lie at a much lower level than in summer. Snow clouds, like mist clouds, when they grow too heavy, have to part with some of their substance, which falls to the earth in white flakes instead of water drops. Much more than mere weight, however, is involved in the fall of snow. Snowflakes are made of the most exquisite ice crystals. The minute needles group themselves in a beautiful star-like shapes, always six-pointed. Many substances, when changed from a liquid into a solid, will crystallize into delicate and beautiful forms, and it is notably so with water. When under free conditions, water freezes into snow. The snow crystals are always formed of six-pointed stars or plates. That it is so we can see with the microscope, but why it should be so we do not know. If very large flakes come down, they are caused by the union of smaller flakes. The drier the air, the smaller and harder will be, as a rule, the flakes, for they cannot stick together unless a little damp. Snow in England comes fitfully and seldom lasts long. Skaters have scarcely time to learn the use of their skates before the opportunity is gone. Yet even in England we have our exceptional winters of really hard frosts and deep snows. Towards the end of the 7th century, for instance, the Thames was completely frozen over for nearly three months, so that, according to an old chronicle, it became a small city, with booths, coffee-houses, taverns, glass-houses, printing, bull-baiting, 
shops of all sorts and whole streets made on it. Food was scarce, prices rose, and the birds of the air died numerously. Another such winter seems to have recurred about twenty-five years later, and again after an interval of nearly fifty years, each differing from the others in details, but all alike in severity. In the present century, the mightiest snowstorm yet known was that of December 1836. Many lives were lost, and business generally came to a standstill for nearly a week. The actual snowfall was said to be from four to nine feet in depth, and snowdrifts were piled to a height of twenty, thirty, forty, even fifty feet. After all, the most excessive of English snowfalls are but a child's play, seen side by side, with that awful visitation to which parts of America are subject, the blizzard. To constitute a true blizzard, writes Miss Gordon Cumming, the whole atmosphere must be full of the finest, most cutting ice dust, sharp as powdered glass, mingled with very small, three-cornered frozen snowflakes, driven with appalling swiftness by a rushing mighty wind, while a sudden fall of the temperature, from comparative warmth to thirty or forty degrees below zero, produces an intensity of cold, which is altogether unbearable, as we may well imagine who deem ourselves frozen, should the thermometer fall two or three degrees below zero. The blast sweeps on with irresistible velocity, so densely charged with pulverized snow and ice, as fine as flour, that it obscures the air with what is described as white darkness, rendering large objects totally invisible at the distance of two or three yards, and accompanied by such a roaring and tumult that the human voice can scarcely make itself heard within a few feet. The luckless traveller who is caught in such a blast runs every risk of suffocation, the action of the lungs being stopped by the swiftness as well as the intense cold of the wind, while the ice dust, which penetrates the thickest clothing, is more choking than the sand of the simoon. Moreover, in the anguish of suffocation, the victims of the blizzard seem occasionally to become insane before dying, in some cases tearing off their clothes as if thus to gain relief. One of the worst blizzards ever known raged through several of the states on and after the 11th of January, 1888, an ice-laden hurricane awful in its power. Within twenty-four hours the temperature dropped from seventy-four degrees above to twenty-eight below zero, and in a single hour blue sky was replaced by a wild storm of powdered snow. People were taken utterly unawares. Children died by the roadside on their way home from school. Farmers died in the fields before they could get to their houses. A woman stepping outside her front door to watch for her husband perished there and then, probably so numbed and bewildered as to have neither power nor sense to turn back. Some even under shelter succumbed to the overwhelming cold and were literally frozen to death. But the greater number, at least of those exposed to the blast, seem to have died of suffocation, fighting for breath, often bearing their throats in the terrible struggle for air. Others again were found dead, stripped of their clothes, which lay scattered piecemeal, as if flung away one by one under the influence of madness. 
such dying madness in its victims is a well-known occasional feature of the blizzard this great storm lasted unbroken for sixty hours three long days and nights of horror of a white darkness of a ceaseless hurricane roar of fearful cold of a stifling rush of ice and snow after such an account one can hardly say much about english winters another form of frozen water descending from the clouds is hail and hail may fall in summer as well as winter hailstones are not made like snowflakes of delicate ice needles but neither are they shapeless lumps of ice if the formation of snowflakes is mysterious the make of hailstones is not less so they too are usually crystallized in beautiful shapes so quite differently from snowflakes the manner of crystallization is often so complicated as to render it almost impossible that they should have sprung into being instantaneously or as the hailstones fell from the clouds probably each hailstone begins with the freezing of a drop of water through a sudden rush of ice-cold air round this central ice particle other particles of ice form in succession taking curious shapes according to certain laws of crystallization all this must occupy time it could hardly be accomplished in a single second possibly not in many seconds yet how heavy growing hailstones not light and feathery like snowflakes but solid and firm can be borne up in the air while their formation goes on is no easy problem in a high wind doubtless they could be carried aloft much longer than in still weather and hail is usually accompanied by a gale moving air as already said in connection with raindrops can bear a far heavier weight than air in repose still there is much in the story of hailstones which we are as yet unable to explain hailstones as large as peas are common and they have been known to fall in britain fully the size of marbles in the orkneys they have been picked up big enough to rival a goose egg and even this has been exceeded elsewhere though many stories of brobdingnanian hailstones might be dismissed as mythical the true individual crystallized hailstone is never very big when great stones fall they are merely rough masses of small stones glued together in the course of their descent by natural stickiness probably resulting from some degree of damp one of the heaviest falls of hail ever known in england was during the thunderstorm of august ninth eighteen forty three it was exceedingly violent in the neighbourhood of cambridge and scarcely less so in oxfordshire an extraordinary darkness of the atmosphere with clouds hanging so low as almost to rest upon the housetops dazzling flashes of lightning and one long continued unceasing roar of thunder were enough in themselves to be impressive but to them was added a deluge of hailstones which lasted more than twenty minutes the scene wrote mr glacier afterward was positively terrific and the fright of many of the inhabitants of the town footnote cambridge end of footnote was in no small degree increased by the crash of broken windows and the inundation of their houses during the whole of this time it was impossible for the eye to penetrate many yards through the storm the hail fell with such wonderful closeness and there was such a peculiar mistiness rising from the earth 
that a complete barrier was opposed to the power of vision. We are almost afraid to speak of the size of the hailstones, or rather blocks of ice, but we are certainly not exaggerating in the least degree when we say that very many of them were as large as ordinary walnuts, some indeed far exceeded this size, one that was picked up measured three and a half inches in circumference, and several have been described to us as being about as big as a pullet's egg. Three hours after the storm was over, unmelted hailstones lay in piles. One gentleman, finding his horse unable to pull the carriage through them, stepped out to clear away, and sank up to his knees. In Cambridge alone, where the brunt of the storm fell, damage was done to at least the extent of twenty-five thousand pounds. Glass was shivered, window frames were dashed in, fruit was cut up, birds were killed, crops were utterly destroyed. In a single half-hour the standing corn was stripped, laid flat, and literally cut up into little pieces. Nothing of it remained for use. Well for us that such outbursts are rare in England. While on the subject of ice a passing mention may be made of frozen waterfalls, often seen in other countries, though not so common in England. The mere fact of a severe frost over the plains does not ensure the freezing of waterfalls upon the higher ground. They usually occupy sheltered spots where the radiation of heat from the earth is less rapid than elsewhere, and a slight or short frost has little power to chain the falling water. But if the frost is severe and lasts long enough, especially if it is accompanied by a dry and bitter wind, the stream is at length more or less mastered. First, the spray at the bottom hardens into a snow-like mass. Then the trickling water on either side becomes solid. Each struggling drop is turned to ice where it rests, and fantastic forms grow slowly into shape, including hollow icicles, through which the ice-cold water still flows. Some of the great Norway waterfalls gain such a mass of frozen spray below, in the course of the winter, that summer cannot entirely do away with it. Even in England we see something of this. The Hordro Force in Bensleydale, a waterfall one hundred feet high, built up in 1881 a cone of ice at its base, no less than thirty feet high, the entire waterfall being that winter frozen, for the first time since 1740. End of chapter 18